Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast for choral conductors, composers, and choristers, where we interview members of our choral community to talk about new music, new and upcoming performances, and discuss the interpersonal and social dynamics of choral organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. Beyond. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! Today we chat with Jeff Gavitt, Director of New York-based ensemble Ekmeles, about the mathematics of tuning, audio tech, adventurous programming, and his ensemble's first live performance in over a year, a live-streamed concert that took place earlier this year on February 27th. We'll play a couple of pieces from that performance during the conversation, but be sure to stick around at the end because we'll be playing extended excerpts of the remaining pieces as well, and you do not want to miss this incredibly cool music. All right, joining us today is Jeffrey Gavitt. And Jeffrey is a composer, performer, and improviser dedicated to new music. He has appeared with a broad array of artists, ranging from the Rolling Stones and the indie rock group Clogs to new music groups such as the International Contemporary Ensemble, Roomful of Teeth, Talia Ensemble, and his own ensembles, Ekmeles and Loadbang. He has been praised as a brilliantly agile singer by the New York Times and holds degrees from Westminster Choir College and Manhattan School of Music. Welcome, Jeff. So glad to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Giacomo, take it away. Yes. Um, so, Jeff, we always start these with a little icebreaker. And given that you have performed with the Rolling Stones, which, mind blown, that's amazing. Um, I wanted to actually ask you a little icebreaker. What was your first live concert that you attended? First live concert? I'm pretty sure it was Billy Joel on the extraordinarily mediocre River of Dreams tour. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that that oh, era very... of the Bard of Long Island, but... Oh, yes. I grew up on Long Island, so I think I actually went to that show, too. Like that, it was <laughs> the one that was at, like, Giant Stadium. Oh, I'm, I'm not from uh, New York, so I saw it in the... Uh, Cumberland County Civic Center yeah. in Portland, Maine, I believe. Yes, I remember that show. Uh, I'm sure that was quite formative to your musical. It was, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Future. <laughs> Sorry you can really, you can really see that in my, you can see that in my work. Yes. <laughs> what did you? Um, what kind of music did you listen to as a kid? I mean, what? Where did your fantasy with music kind of begin? Um. I have an older sister. She's two and a half years older than me, so my musical taste came a lot from her. You know, much much like most things, I think, when you have a sibling who's just a couple years older, they're really cool and you want to be like them. So uh, when she was 12 or 13 or something, she was super into the alternative radio station in our town. And, you know, so I had... Nirvana records and Frank Zappa records and stuff growing up because I wanted to listen to what she was listening to. I got more into, I guess, experimental kinds of things through metal, actually. Mm -hmm. So I actually do have a formative concert experience uh, where I was going to see Tool in 2001, uh, September 20th, 2001. I went to see them on this tour for a record called Lateralis, which is a beautifully 
produced album, just incredible sound. An opening for them was a group called Phantomus that I had never heard of uh, and I didn't know anything about. And it turns out the singer for Phantomus is Mike Patton, who is this incredible legendary metal and now like experimental and new music vocalist. And their set, Phantomus's set, just so totally blew my mind. I, in that moment, decided like, I am going to have a career in music. This is what I want to do with my life is like create moments like this and then i was pretty bored by the tool set even though i loved that album it was sort of a flat performance uh whereas phantomus was just so physical and uh vital and and moving where does the group dream theater fit in for you (laughs) i was never much of a big prog guy for some reason i really like thrashy uh the the sort of messier side of experimental things. So Dillinger Escape Plan is uh, my other uh, big listening focus. Them and Meshuga are my my mm. sort of main listening, I think. And so that's the stuff that led you on the road to what we'll be talking about today. Yeah, yeah. Ekmelis, which um, we were just chatting about this before. And Zane, what did you look up? What is the what is what is what does Ekmelis the word actually mean? Well, I I did get this from Ekmeli's website, of course, but it does state on their site that in ancient Greek music theory, tones of indefinite pitch and intervals with complex ratios, in other words, tones not appropriate for musical usage. That's what the term Ekmeli's means in ancient Greek music theory. Is that right, Jeff? Yes, yeah. It's uh, Aristoxenes, if I remember correctly. Wow, fascinating. But it's also a New York City vocal ensemble. Uh huh. Can you tell us a little bit more about Ekmelis and how it got started? Sure. Yeah. In uh, we did our first show in 2010, which is kind of crazy to think about now. Actually, in the in the same church where we just did our show on Saturday. Oh, cool. Uh, which is right up the street from where I live, so I got to walk to work yesterday or uh, Saturday, which is quite nice. Uh, the group came about because. I always had this interest in doing new things and in singing. Uh, I went to Westminster Choir College for undergraduate, and there's not a lot of sort of really out there experimental stuff happening there. They do some newer music, but a lot of it is, I'm sure you know that there's like uh, a new music scene and a new choral music scene, and they're they're interested in different things generally. There's overlap, of course, but there's uh, you're likely to hear a different kind of music at an instrumental new music show than you are at a choral show that has a new piece on it. Mm. Um, so I I did some new things, but it wasn't the kind of stuff that I was really excited about. Uh, and I was especially interested in the flexibility in tuning and other kinds of musical parameters that the voice had when it was unaccompanied. So I had the experience of being in a, a choir and someone saying, oh, give the, give the singers the pitch, but not at the piano. Don't play the chord at the piano. Just give someone, give us just like the tonic or something. Give us a note, because that way it'll be more in tune, right? Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what they say. Uh, and I thought, what? the the piano is not in tune like did we not tune the piano <laughs> like <laughs> if if the notes on the piano aren't the right notes then what 
are the right notes? And how do we know what they are? Like, it's not magic. We don't just pick out, we don't, we aren't born knowing how to sing a major triad. Right. You know, we're, we're not, and that the piano is, is different and that we have some sort of like intuitive, uh, way of being more in tune than the piano. Uh, we're picking a specific thing for a specific reason. So I wanted to know what that was. So that got me interested in microtones especially, and in, in thinking about tuning by uh, frequency ratios, mm-hmm. and tuning sort of related to the overtone series. So that, uh, that experience, followed by going to Manhattan School of Music for their contemporary performance program, got me interested in starting a vocal group. I wanted a venue to explore these kinds of ideas. And there was also a, a really wonderful group called, and there still is actually, Die Neue Vokalsolisten out of Stuttgart. Mm. And they are a sextet with the same voicing as us that has commissioned a ton of incredible music uh, for more than 30 years now, I think. Wow. So there was a whole ton of repertoire that they had been doing in Europe that was not done in the U.S. at all. And it was a special kind of music for voices that wasn't being done, wasn't being heard, and I I loved that music and I wanted to do it. So that's that's how the group got started. We did our first show in 2010, and we've been going strong ever since, even throughout uh, this year when we couldn't all be in the same place. Amazing. Why do you think that is, that in, in Europe all these new music uh, pieces were being done by choirs and in the States we just weren't doing it at all. Why, why do you think there is that disparity? I think there's a different kind of uh, dedication to new work in, in places that have state funding. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of it is economic and that mm-hmm. composers uh, and ensembles that know that they have support can just do whatever kind of work that they want to do, commission more things because someone's being paid to do right. it uh, more reliably, and and just explore a little bit in a way that's different than when we have to uh, sort of jump from grant to grant like we're crossing a river on slippery stones. Given, given the nature of the music and that this is so cutting edge, especially for, for choral music, um, as a director, what do you consider when you program a new performance set? Well, uh, I want to have some kind of connection or continuity thematically. That's one of the main things that interests me is not just doing a potpourri. Uh, I want the pieces to, to stick together thematically, musically, uh, emotionally, something. So that's that's one of the prime uh, concerns. The other, I guess, the way that I, I normally do it is we have one or two premieres. We'll have some, some new pieces that are coming in that will set up uh, a kind of framework. Mm-hmm. So we have, say, for uh, this Saturday's concert, I knew I would have a piece by... Jeff Myers for Four Voices and Electronics. I knew I would have a piece by Rebecca Bruton for Four Voices Without Electronics. So I thought, all right, here we go. Four Voices, we have the option to have electronics and we have one thing that doesn't have it. So we're building some more things that contrast or compare with that different kinds of uh, 
notation, different focuses on what's important in the voice. Uh, for example, uh, Nomi Epstein's piece from that concert is all written down on graph paper. There's no specified notes, just very specific relationships between notes and ways of moving uh, between them. And then uh, Kaya Sariajo's piece that we did at the end of the concert uh, was a way for us to keep having some electronics on the show. Yeah. We, um, we saw also on your site that um, one of the things that you have concerned yourself with recently, especially given um, everything that has sort of been going on with um, social issues in the United States, that um, you have signed something called the New Music, or you were participating in something called the New Music Equity Action Pledge, um, which sounds a little bit about something we've talked about on the show and we'll talk about more, which is the, the Black Voices Matter Pledge that was started by uh, some folks who are down in, in L.A., can you tell us and tell the folks who are listening a little bit more about um, the New Music Equity Action Pledge and how that plays into you? You had some very interesting things to say about it on the site, but can you tell us how that plays into your programming as well, like how you're thinking about that? Sure, yeah, that's that's a really important focus uh, that, that we have that's been honed by this group. So uh, New Music Equity Action is uh, a group without any fixed membership that is open to anybody in the fields that's been meeting since June 2020 uh, with the goal of rectifying the legacy of white supremacy and racism in new music. Um, and the pledge is a project that, that sort of developed organically in the group over several months of thinking about uh, how do we want to advocate for changes? How, who needs to make changes? How do they need to be made? How can we make the field better? And originally, the idea was sort of focusing outward in a certain sense, uh, talking to granting organizations or big presenters, things like that. And then we realized that it was, uh, I was, I was a, a participant in a lot of these uh, meetings and planning sessions, but, you know, I, I don't speak for the whole group. Like I said, it's a sort of anarchist collective of people who come in and out and work on these projects. Um, but we, we decided that we should clean our own house first and decide what we think is important and uh, commit to it publicly and then hopefully bring some other people along for the ride. Yeah. So that's how the Pledge Project came about. Uh, we wrote in uh, sort of s several different categories of, uh, of pledges that we're making about our values pledging solidarity to disenfranchised communities and individuals when they're faced with exclusion or retribution, transparency about our uh, demographic information and programming, commissioning, collaborating, uh, continuing to learn, sharing our resources, and uh, especially putting together a five-year cultural equity plan by the end of this season. That was, uh, it's something that a lot of people notice when they look at the pledge and think, oh my God, <laughs> this is a lot, like five years, how are we going to plan something like this? Because a lot of the new music groups are are smaller organizations, right? A lot of them are, the board of directors is the band. Right. And right. we're just sort of going show to show and putting our things together. Uh, the five-year plan is a way of us sort of trying to prod everyone to think really deeply about why they're doing what they're doing and what they're doing. Uh, and to decide what their work should be like farther down the line, 
to make long-term plans. It's not like I'm going to look at this plan in five years from someone and say, you didn't follow this exactly. You had all these steps. But the idea is uh, that you're at least dreaming and considering and writing down what for you would be a way to progress to a more just uh, way of being in the world, right? Our ensembles are part of a social fabric. And I think that that needs to be acknowledged and dealt with, especially when it comes to race. Yeah, it's not just for February anymore, right? <laughs> no, not at you all. Know, the, work, the work has to continue and go on, which I think is, is great. You, you, you mentioned something, or actually the pledge mentioned something, which uh, I don't maybe fully understand, and maybe you can illuminate for us, which uh, the, you call out the white supremacy and racism. And I, I think I understand the latter part a little bit more, and I kind of understand the, the relationship between those two things, like institutional racism, where money goes, where, um, where we focus our time and attention, where the existing um, organization focus their time and attention. But I don't know so much about the, the first part, the white supremacy part of that. Is there something that's explicit in the history of new music that made that worthy of calling out? Or do, or do they just sort of part and parcel the same? I think there's certainly overlap. Um, the particular language of the pledge is something that was uh, developed over a very long time with a lot of people's input. Um, so I don't know if I am the best person to speak about like a specific word choice. Uh, for me, looking at that, uh, I would think of white supremacy in this context referring to the, the assumptions uh, made about black artistry or non-white artistry in, in the field. So... Often uh, you'll hear fallacious arguments and responses even now to the notion that, well, we need to, you need to program some more black composers. And they'll say, well, you know, I program by quality. We're, mm. you know, we're not just, it's not token. We're, you know, I don't program just based on that. Well, it's like, well, okay, now you're making assumptions that uh, there isn't black music of quality or that if you are choosing black music, you're not choosing music of quality when... In fact, you can uh, assess whether black music is music of quality the same way that you can assess white music. You look at the score, you listen to recordings, you say, is this good music? Does this fit the aesthetic of my ensemble? And there's music, uh, there's an incredible project by George Lewis, who is a, a composer uh, and theoretician and trombonist and, and general all-around incredible person uh, at Columbia University here who has written a piece for my group Loadbagging that I'm, I'm really, really proud of. Uh, he had a wonderful project at Darmstadt a couple years ago where he pulled up, like, is this incredible research project found all these pieces by black composers from over the whole history of the Darmstadt summer courses, over that whole time frame, rather, and put them together into this, like, eight-hour audio video presentation. So it was just, he said that it was to like drive a truck through the notion that there wasn't black music that would fit there. Um, that there's, in the sort of academic music world, like Darmstadt or people coming out of Columbia, and, you know, Ekmelis is certainly in that uh, 
in that part of the musical world, mm-hmm. uh, the academy is pretty white. And most of the music in that world is pretty white. But there are black composers writing in all idioms, writing all kinds of music. Um, George has a quote in there that I I think is from Muhal Richard Abrams, but I can't remember off the top of my head that uh, there are many kinds of black life and because of that we know that there are many kinds of black music because music comes from life and they all matter absolutely yeah so in in so you said Ekmelis has been performing since 2010 so 10 years yeah Um, in that in those 10 years have you managed to find pieces by black composers to feel like you've had some adequate representation at the level of composition that you guys perform at uh it's an ongoing project. We're not where we want to be. That's what f- the five-year plan is about. Yeah. Uh, and ab- what transparency is about. Uh, one of the one of the goals of the pledge. So, we're we're working on uh, putting together our uh, demographic information for all of our commissions and performances over the the past five years, and then and looking forward five years from now. Yeah. We have. Uh, had a, a wonderful collaboration with uh, Courtney Bryan, who wrote a great series of pieces for us as part of her dissertation at Columbia. She's actually a student of George Lewis's um, that we'll be doing on our concert on May 8th. Oh, cool. So I'm very proud of those. And we have some other commissions upcoming. Uh, but that's that's been a real hole in our programming, honestly. Um, and it's something that... Uh, you know, in the, in the past few years, there's been a sort of push in the field about making sure that we're programming music by women. Yep. And uh, we're working on that in the past few years. And now the f- our, we're continuing that work and making sure that uh, racial equity is a part of our uh, part of our work going forward in a more substantive way. And yep. we're going to be sharing, like I said, sharing all our data about that to to hopefully inspire people to look closely at themselves you know i i direct iocsf the international orange corral here in san francisco and we're dedicated to to doing new music by uh up-and-coming composers and whatnot but you know in our history we have not been great about making sure that there's always representation for the underrepresented composers um and we did do a program of all women composers um but it's yeah, and it's not because we actively chose not to um, showcase music by black composers. It's just right, a matter of we just didn't make an effort to do it. And that's the big, you know, for lack of a better phrase, come to Jesus we're all having right now, which is <laughs> we need to well, that's do That's the work. That's the work that yeah, has to be done. Yeah, that's the work. And it, and it's and it's about doing the work. And that's the thing that I'm that, you know, Giacomo and I as part of this podcast and me as the director of that group is that now it's it's a t- it's time to actively do it and not just yeah. simply say oh well it just wasn't available no 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 it's time to yeah. make the change the great thing about being in in new music is that we are creating repertoire in a yeah. way that uh like you know uh, a symphony orchestra that plays 18th century music all the time is not so we can we can make the repertoire that we want to have and that's that's what we're playing on uh that's the kind of work that we're doing going forward with Akmelis is focusing our commissioning more in that direction. Uh, because, you know, music for 
Our, our main voicing is soprano, mezzo, countertenor, tenor, baritone, bass. So music for that specific unaccompanied sextet, uh, you know, it's already <laughs> narrowing down the number of pieces that, that there are that we could do without, you know, adapting something. And then to go farther into like a particular kind of aesthetic or something and then, and then say that we want to get uh, a certain kind of representation for composers out of that. Uh, you talk about narrowing the pool of things. There's just not a lot of that rep that's out there yet. So we get to make it. Yeah, that's exciting. We yeah. should be embracing that, you know, and you uh, are, and that's great. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's... Uh, you, you start to question it like... So I've, I've been doing this group for 10 years. I feel like 10 years is a good point to ask yourself like, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and uh, COVID is also a very good time to ask, what am I doing? Yeah, uh, and why am I doing it? Because I feel like there's starting things like this is very easy. You know, it all it takes is that you have the desire to do a thing, right. and then you just get rolling. And especially if you're coming right out of school, it's like, yeah, I love this thing. I mean, I keep doing this. What do you do when you get out of school for a new music thing? You make a new music group. Yeah, and you work with your friends. And you do some music that you already know. It's like, well, then we're reproducing whatever structures we have come out of. And unfortunately, those structures are, uh, there aren't a lot of women and there aren't a lot of people of color. So if we just float along oblivious and keep doing the thing that we were doing as we started doing it, we're, uh, we're actively causing harm. So doing the continuing to work on lessening the harm that we're doing by doing the work that we do. <laughs> um, it's, it's really, really important. And I'm, I'm very proud of NMEA for being a, an open forum for people to come in and uh, work on behalf of the scene and, you know, tell each other when things aren't working out or ask for help uh, and, you know, not perform our uh our anti-racist and and equity focused work but really ensure that we're doing the right thing and keep learning and when we mess up you know figure out how we can fix it yeah it's a scary thing to be doing you know talking about it feels like you, you know it's like uh it's like going to confessional or something <laughs> right <laughs> you're having a terrible secret it's yeah. like well i I want to I want to contribute to my field in lots of different ways and part of it is to bring more people in. Yeah. For sure. And and speaking of the work that you do and the the performances, um Zane and I sat through uh, your live streaming performance this past uh, this past Saturday night, um which was your very first live performance in, in over a year or in about a year, which was really spectacular. It was a great show. And Thank we you. kind of want to set the stage for the folks um, who hadn't seen it. And we'll put the link um, in the show notes so that folks can go and check it out. I think it's going to be available for, for a little while longer. Um, but maybe help set the stage for folks. Because the first thing you notice when you, when you log on and you see this YouTube stream is there's a lot of mics and there's a, there's a whole <laughs> lot of sort of technical setup going on for just, you know, for just four singers on the stage. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the technical setup and maybe set the stage for folks? 
Sure. So we're we're in uh, our Savior's Atonement Lutheran Church, which is a beautiful uh, sort of simple cube of a room just up the street from my place on Bennett Ave in northern Manhattan. And we're in front of some very simple stained glass windows. And there's four singers. We are six feet apart from each other in an arc, all wearing uh, matching KN94 uh, black masks. And uh, we have a stereo pair of room mics. And then in front of each singer, we have our music stand uh, and one main recording mic and then an effects mic that's only used for this Saria Ho piece that that we had called Mise à Dieu. You should actually see what's behind the camera is the real tech uh, setup where we had our our two uh, recording and streaming technicians there with you know a, a, a rack mount case of amplifiers and gear and I think three laptops and a router and <laughs> you know a, a place for them to have their score out while they're following us and queuing things in the Sariaho. It was quite it was quite an undertaking, but. Uh, you know, we got to, to make it happen. That's what it takes right now. Yeah. Did you guys have, uh, in-ear monitors as well? Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we had a, a headphone amplifier down in front of us and, uh, and earbuds such that we could, uh, hear. So Jeff Myers' piece, the first piece on the program has a drone, mm -hmm. an electronic drone element. And, uh, then Sariaho's piece has these incredible, uh, filters and effects on the voices. Neither of those are actually playing in the room. Right. So we just had them in our ears rather than bringing a PA into the room and then re-recording the room. There's nobody there live. So we didn't need the sound in the room. Right. It's like broadcasting a studio setup, essentially. 
It is. Yeah. I think that's the way to get the best uh, results out of this because we're just, it's all about the, the mediation. Yeah. Right. That's the different thing about doing a show uh, versus doing a streaming show. Mm-hmm. There's nobody there to hear it live. What it sounds like in the room totally doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it's for, it's for you, uh, you know, hundreds of miles away. Yeah. Do you, do you think about that too? I mean, I we chatted about this a little when you were we were sitting um, and watching the show. Um, I you know the quality. Zane's thankfully got really great audio quality. He's got speakers set up. But like, how does that impact the ultimate imp- the, the the impact you're trying to create? I mean, do you think about that if someone's like in their car or on like on an iPhone? Like, who was the director who was like? screeching at people was it david lynch who was like you're watching on a fucking iphone you know like exactly do you think about that when you put one of these shows out no um i'm just thinking that i'm going to send out the best thing possible at like audio levels that work yeah and the video has to look pretty good uh the video is not like 4k like you know with five videographers or whatever because that ends up being like an insane amount of money and i and i don't particularly care about that like that's mm-hmm. not why i would watch or not watch a a stream and that like i said is sort of prohibitively expensive for our small group but getting really good sound out in a way that uh if you have a nice speaker set up it sounds like you're listening to a cd or something that's that's the main goal for me now it's a little different when we uh, our previous shows we did some synchronous streaming things, but and some pre-made video things. So when when we're doing that, uh, the visual presentation is is a, a a different sort of level of concern. Sure. But still, like I don't know, phone. As long as someone watches it, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did as an amazing you... job of capturing the audio because it was. Oh, thank you. The quality was. A, it was just ridiculous how good the quality was and these crazy high and loud soprano notes and nothing peaked, nothing clipped. It just, it sounded so, so yeah. good. And Steve Reislack's bass just rumbling. Through. Oh yeah, you get to amazing. enjoy that through the speakers. It's something. Yeah, you actually finally, you get to feel something, you know, like you get at least sort of an approximation of that live performance, which, yeah. is, which is pretty awesome. Um, one thing that that is in the was in the program notes for, or rather, two things that I'm I'm not sure how they're related, but I kind of wanted to ask about them: just tuning and mm-hmm. micro tuning. Sure. Tell tell me a little bit about um, what is just tuning. Two of the scores mentioned it specifically in the program notes. What is just tuning, and how do you achieve it? Sure. So the the default. Uh, the background radiation of classical music is uh, 12-tone equal temperament. So every half step is the same size. The way that we find the size of a half step is that it's the 12th root of two, which is, uh, you know, that's not a really fun number. It's, <laughs> if you think about it, half steps are pretty hard to sing in, in tune in this sort of piano uh, size of them. Uh, but we can also find pitches through different ratios. The reason that it's the 12th root of two is that an octave is twice the frequency of the lower note. So for example, middle, uh, the A above middle C is 440, octave below that is 220 uh, hertz, cycles a second, mm-hmm. octave above that 440 is 880. Right. Um, and you'll note that it's 220 
hertz if you subtract 440 from 220. That's the size of an octave, right? 220. But then it's 440 if the ne in the next octave. So that's why we have to have roots because pitch ends up being logarithmic rather than linear. Right. Or rather, frequency is logarithmic and our perception of pitch is linear. So we can create different scales and reach different pitches by using uh, ratios other than uh, with numbers higher than two. So a one just gets you a unison, one to one. Mm -hmm. uh, two to one will get you an octave. You can also go four to one, one to two, and get all kinds of different octaves. But we need to start adding other numbers to our ratios to get other pitches. Just tuning uh, or just intonation describes a tuning that is comprised entirely of these small-ish whole number ratios. So when we add a three, we get a three to one, which would be an octave and a perfect fifth, or a three to two ratio, which is just a perfect fifth. That sounds esoteric, but if you sing in a choir and you sing a fifth in tune, you are singing a three to two ratio. Right. When it rings, that's three to two. Um, if you sing early music, especially if you sing with instruments like really, really fine uh, string players or with keyboards that are tuned in, in certain temperaments, the thirds that you're going to sing, a major third is a five to four ratio. It's that nice, sweet, low major third. So contemporary composers have taken this idea that really comes from the, the very beginnings of the Western musical tradition, um, including like this, the Greek name of our group. Uh, it means ratios that are too complex for musical usage. So it's kind of a joke that we do this music that uses these really these complex ratios. If you look at uh, uh, Guido, Guido teaches in, uh, I think it's the Micrologus, he teaches you how to build a scale out of ratios. Mm. And you, you take your little mono chord, your single string instrument, and you measure out spaces on the string, how far to be able to put a little bridge in and play the right note. And in his time, we're using Pythagorean tuning. Only uh, three is the highest prime number involved in all the ratios. All the whole steps are that big fifth of a fifth whole step that, again, you think of in choral music if you're singing re or two, scale degree two over five, down to one, that big whole step, nine over eight. It's the only whole step in Pythagorean tuning. And in Guido's time, uh, that is actually a theological concern. Three is the number that we use for our tuning because of the Holy Trinity. Sure. And we don't use any numbers higher than that. Um, that eventually went away and people started using more and more complex ratios. And then we flattened it all out so we could modulate. And we decided on equal temperament. Now uh, we're looking at the different sonic possibilities uh, that just tuning affords. We have all different flavors of thirds. Rather than just a major third and a minor third, um, in Jeff Myers' piece from last night, the first interval that I sing uh, with our bass Steve Reislack is a 7 over 6 uh, septimal minor third. It's a really low minor third. It's about 30, uh, 31 cents lower than a minor third would be in uh, equal temperament. So we're just expanding the palette of colors that we have with intervals in a way that is also tunable by ear. These yeah. are the kind of intervals that you can lock in and you can make them ring and you can eliminate the sound of beats. Just like you do if you're tuning a string instrument, 
uh, and you sort of hear those beats slow down as you get closer and closer to a perfect interval, you can do that with any of these just intervals. Fascinating. <laughs> I feel like I could nerd out on that all day. <laughs> <laughs> I need a moment to like cast a bit of shade because I remember um, in high school I was in orchestra and and choir, and I remember my you know my my orchestra teacher was like, oh, you know, singing is just for the kids that just can't hack it. You know, they can't do classical music. And I'm like, I don't know what mu- music you were listening to, lady, but like everything you just said, I'm sitting here being like, yeah, I, I, I'm going to need a calculator here. This is pretty fascinating. <laughs> well, yeah. This, we, this ain't we, your mama's singing, right? This is, some <laughs> new, uh, this is some new stuff. Yeah. And some of it's, I mean, some of it's new and some of it's just exploring uh, territory that classical music doesn't, uh, that classical music decided not to care about for a while. Like these theoretical structures underpin uh, the traditional repertoire, but it's sort of been been cast aside. Even if you look at like, uh, I, th- I want to say there's a there's a letter from Lully talking about uh, an opera of his where there's an earthquake scene and there's uh, a chord with a, a G sharp in it, say, playing in the violins, and then there's a rest, and then there's an enharmonic respelling, and the violins are playing in A flat. And he says in a letter like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, les violons du roi, they're, sm- they're good enough to know that those are two different notes. But, you know, you wouldn't really get that from most ensembles. So it's a thing that, that people, people thought about and cared about and certainly care about in different musics all around the world. Like mm. the great thing about just tuning is because it's by ear uh, and it's perceptible, it's a useful way to describe and communicate between tunings in a lot of different musical cultures around the world. Um, so in the first piece uh, that you guys performed about migra- uh, migraines, um, there was a fundamental being played by an electronic sound source uh, mm-hmm. through the first half, and then it changed to a different fundamental at some point through the piece. But there were only two, isn't, is that yep. right? <clears throat> so the, the idea of just intonation in that piece, was it always in relation to the fundamental, or was it that you were doing just tuning from singer to singer, or was it a combination of both? Uh, the way that piece worked is that the the first part is in B and the second part's in A, and we are either singing uh, really only overtone tunings. So um, even though we go as far up as the the twenty third partial, every prime number is a sort of new flavor of interval as you go up the overtone series. So the seven is that nice lowered seven we talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 11 is the natural tritone that's like about a quarter tone low. Uh, Jeff then has us go all the way up to the 23rd, which is a really sharp tritone. Um, but everything is related down to the fundamental and to the drone. Okay. So because of that, we are relating to one another very precisely as well, because we are in relationship to the drone. So we're in relationship to one another. Uh, and then he describes it as sort of a big five one where we just boom modulate into a into a new key finally uh but still uh with overtone relationships now Jeff mixes it up a little bit because he doesn't like the thirteenth partial, so whenever we sing uh me neither it, uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> whenever we sing uh what would be a thirteen in that, which would be a kind of sixth scale degree, he just has us sing a major sixth. And there's also some other equal temperament uh, solos in the piece, like, you know, when we're singing minor thirds 
uh, against these these overtone chords that only have major thirds in them, uh, unless you have the nineteenth partial, which he doesn't use. Uh, we we stick these uh, sort of conflicting tuning systems together. Okay, how, as singers, do you achieve that in real time in a performance? I mean, we noticed as we were watching that you all were pulling out all manner of devices and things. And I think at one point, <laughs> Steve was like showing an iPhone. I don't know if that was part of it, but how do you actually achieve that in the, in the midst of a live performance? Sure. Steve showing an iPhone was a reminder. Does everyone have their timer or did you forget it off stage? Because Nomi's piece is on uh, Nomi Epstein's piece. We were all following uh, stopwatches. Um <laughs> We learn these pieces um, that it depends. Every piece has its own needs because a lot of people create their own kinds of systems in a piece. Jeff's piece is an overtone tuning piece, and we have done a lot of pieces in that kind of work. So we know what an 11 sounds like or a 23. Um, But I will make a computer mock-up for the pieces that we do. So I will... Uh, make essentially a synthesized version of the piece in perfect tuning to what it should be. Uh, And I'll also bring along a keyboard to rehearsal that I have set up and connected to my computer to be able to play back any of these notes. So just like if you had a hard 12-note piece, if you can't quite get a passage right, you play it back, you try and match it. So we we learn things, and then you try and make the chords ring. It's... it's, uh, only different by degrees from from doing a normal piece. Uh, we have tuning forks 
uh, for pieces where the pitch is a little more ambiguous and we want to make sure that we stay on uh, mm-hmm. of the quartet that sang on Saturday. Only our bass, Steve Reislack, has perfect pitch. So the rest of us are just... Ugh, uh, hate her. Just, <laughs> just, just, going, just going note to note. <laughs> you know, so for a lot of us in, in choirs that are not quite at the level that Ekmelis is at, you know, we talk a lot about, um, like, you know, you, you got a major triad. So you've got the, your, your tonic and your fifth. And then when we slot that third in, uh, I've been trained over the years as a director to, you know, usually think of that third as needing to be just push just a little bit higher so that it rings really well against the fifth. How does that idea of tuning, and of course now obviously we're not talking about the complexities of Ekmeli's style of tuning, but nonetheless, how can we relate what you're talking about to something that's a little bit more basic in that regard? Can you, can you relate that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there are as many ways of thinking about tuning and temperament as there are musicians and groups and, and, uh, you know, musical traditions. Uh, so I think the, it, it, it's, it's kind of funny actually, because this, this idea of raising the, the third for this ringing sound, I understand that it's going for a kind of like, uh, that the major triad has a kind of brightness or excitement to it. Like it's an active sound. Mm. Uh, if you can characterize it that way. Whereas uh, a just tuned uh, overtone m- major chord that would be a four, five, six ratio actually feels pretty settled. And it feels mm. very grounded. And the third is quite low. It's actually 16 cents lower than on the piano. So it's just that we're going after different sounds. Okay. Um, there's a, the characteristic sound of the major third in a lot of, uh, in, or at least in some Indian raga singing, has that the sort of like settled, mellow, grounded feeling of the third, hmm. uh, and I think it's just a different. It's a different kind of music. Uh, there's uh, Lou Harrison, uh, who's a wonderful American composer, who also, uh, I believe, was one of the first people working in gamelan music in the United States. Uh, I think he was talking about. Uh, classical music, Western European classical music, and saying that it's it's so fast because you know we play so many notes, we sing so many notes because it's out of tune. Wow. Like the reason that <laughs> the reason the harmonic motion is so fast is because the relationships aren't very true. Uh, so as long as it keeps moving, it doesn't bother you too much. But if you slow it way down and really listen to the tuning, like you would in music uh, that has a drone sure. rather than uh, you know moving fundamentals you'd really hear that it sounds kind of sour. But, you know, in... It's also different singing in a choir than singing in a vocal ensemble. So we are usually maximum six solo voices on our own parts. Right. Once you have three people singing on a part, uh, it's an entirely different world acoustically. And you have different concerns about uh, timbre and tuning, which I think are interdependent ideas in in vocal music hmm. you i'm sure you have said many times like uh tenors we're not quite matching that vowel and then someone hmm. changes a vowel and then the chord's in tune right it's like you didn't change and you didn't change a note but vowels are frequencies like vowels are uh 
emphasized bands of frequencies so they are as as musical and as as tonal as the as the pitches are i forget yeah i forget who said it like i think maybe zane this is something you taught us or or just mentioned it but every vowel is a different instrument mm. every shape your embouchure and your head and your skull make to produce that vowel is actually just a complete different instrument i thought that was fascinating i wish i could take credit for that but i don't think that was me (laughs) because that's brilliant i'll give it to you all right. <laughs> Jeff, I want to talk also a little bit more about, um, you mentioned the scores earlier. And um, we took a peek at um, the score for Four Voices and, and for a few of the others, the ones that we could find. Um, oh, my God. They are, like, hyper-specific, especially the, the, the bits for, for, for micro-tuning. Um, and the, the gut reaction I had when I looked at that was, <gasps> you know, th- that they're, they're <laughs> so specific, right? That yeah. That, um, that my that my reaction was oh my gosh they feel so um, confining mm-hmm. and you know you go to a piece and and of course one of the things we always say as as choral singers is like you know I'd rather see something that was sort of performed a little sloppy and a little thing but has lots of heart and lots mm-hmm. of expression in it right because we want to make an impact um, how do you relate to the scores in that way like do you do you f- do you feel like those they're limiting in any way like where do you find the expression in a score that is so specific in its in its um, performances. Like I even think like one of the other pieces you've done in the past, Lingua Glossa, the score is so specific as to have the video that accompanies it, and the yeah. the, the narrator's spoken patterns are like super hyper notated. How yeah. do you feel when you approach a score like that? It's it's actually what I like. Um, I like to have uh, constraints in mm. in my art. Even even in my work, like my actual like day to day, I have to practice and learn a thing. If I don't have a show, I'm not gonna learn the piece. You know, mm. even if it's a hard one that I should like take a long time to learn. If I don't have a show booked, it's really hard for me to sit down and do the work. Similarly, if a score doesn't have that much, if it doesn't require that much of me, it's like, well, what am I? putting into it like if it's not giving me that much so i i love a score that has a ton of details a ton of you know if there's a dynamic on every note and there's hard notes and there's all these things to do i think paradoxically the role of the performer becomes even more important and the role of live performance becomes even more important if we have i mean of course all of these concepts track back neatly onto any music performance if you look at in uh in a certain frame, but let's say I'm doing a piece that is so hard, I will never get it right, right? But I've worked really hard on it. Let's say I get 98% of it, of all the markings, if we're like quantifying, you know, per note, per dynamic, whatever. Uh, Then every performance is going to be different. Every performance that I give is going to reflect where I am in that moment in my voice in my life, in my performing, in my mind. Um, And there can, in some important ways, never really be a recording that is definitive um, if a piece has those kinds of difficulties. Now, like I said, you could sort of track that back onto Mozart pretty easily, I think. Uh, No one will ever, like, do it perfectly, but there's an idea that you can. Right, yeah. you can fix a recording and put everything in tune. You can have the best singer do it, who's done it a bunch. There, that is the thing. But uh, I have a piece, especially 
that I think lines up with this beautifully called I Purple's Spat Blood Laugh of Beautiful Lips by Aaron Cassidy, where I actually have a, an electronic earpiece that's connected to a piece of software that uh, generates a glissando that's different every time within certain random parameters. Oh. And in addition to the difficult rhythms and phonemes and vocal techniques that I have to do that are on the page, I have something in my ear that's different every time. Uh, so for me, that creates a situation where I, as the performer, am acknowledged as a more important uh, transmitter of the work, and that you being in the room while I do it, experiencing it in that moment, is more uh, precious and special and uh, completely unique in a way that is, is foregrounded. Yeah, it, it's interesting because the, the scores may be that specific. And I guess the counterpoint to feeling like maybe there, there, there are constraints is that, you know, you get a piece like um, Whispers by Derek Cooper, which is about a pretty heady topic. I mean, it's, it's um, his, his attempt to, um, for those who haven't heard it, um, to offer voice to a taboo topic, which was sort of his ideation of suicide that he sort of had mm -hmm. gone through. And in his life, so folks had always said, don't speak about that, don't talk about it. Um, and, and he gets really specific about how he's trying to talk about this topic. Like, um, two, two of the notations in the score are breathe in through gritted teeth with a fast airstream, creating a raspy air sound or, um, mm -hmm. rhythm and pitch do not need to be followed strictly. The general effect should be like a siren. So, I mean, despite specificity, in what ways does that type of a score insufficient to, to express the new range of emotions required to express topics that were previously taboo. Do you ever find yourself where you're like, whoa, this is like a new way of doing stuff and stuff we've never talked about before colliding? Yeah. Um, I, I think in some ways the... I, one of my favorite kinds of markings is just an emotional marking. Mm -hmm. Like if someone writes in the score uh, that this line should be uh, livid or, you know golden or you know something abstract and that or or you know i i said emotional and i said golden i don't know if that's an emotion uh but abstract language emotional language often gets at vocal colors very directly i think mm. so i i love to have that in in scores in in terms of uh like subject matter for pieces um I, as a performer, I'm not sure if I feel like I am, like, as, is this the right word, responsible <laughs> for it as the composer is? Like, when we get something that's about, uh, you know, a heady topic uh, or a taboo topic, often my thought is, uh, is this being handled well by the composer? Like, is this, is this something that's going to reflect well on the ensemble? If we are doing a thing that is reflecting something taboo or uh, offensive, possibly, you know, especially if, you know, we do a lot of work with young composers and working at universities. And if you get something that's a little clumsily done, that's about a really heavy topic, that like doesn't feel great to go on stage with. Yeah. Um, I'm, that's not the case with Derek's piece. Um, I think that, but it is to say in relationship to his that 
his job is to encapsulate the the meaning of of this subject into vocal music and our job is to execute that in the best way that that we can and express it the best way that we can and it's just a question of whether we are willing to express those things in those in those moments depending on the context i guess that's what's most important to me i want to believe what believe in what i'm doing on stage and speaking of the, how you as performers and your responsibility as performers and exploring the composition, exploring the text, one of the pieces you performed on Saturday was uh, In Situ, um, titled In Situ, which I guess as I understand it started first, it was a dance that then became a piece of a text or a poem that then became a composition. Yes. And you all have certainly done pieces which are um, interdisciplinary. I mean, there have been compo- pieces of it which are performative, you know, with clipboards and things which I saw in other pieces. And um, so considering the origins of, of In Situ, did you do any extra musical explorations of this piece as you were kind of developing your minds? Did you, I mean, did you ever play and dance with each other or, you know, do anything that sort of is outside <laughs> of what you might think of as rehearsing a piece like this? No, that piece didn't, that piece didn't bring that out. Uh, I guess we, we approached it like, uh, you know, it's, I guess every score is like a, like a found object in a way. Like I am approaching a score based first on the score. I'm being handed this thing. This is the, the means by which this is being communicated to me. I actually haven't seen the dance. So I, I didn't follow the, the trail all the way back. That was for Rebecca to do and for her to filter through to us and then for us to take what she has on the page and, and a very helpful Zoom coaching uh, <laughs> to figure out some sort of phrasing things. And then it's, and then it's ours. What did that score look like for Institu? Uh, it's a very lovely handwritten uh, score, mostly traditional notation. The microtones in that piece are just uh, written with little arrows pointing up or down attached to the accidentals that indicate sure. uh, syntonic comma shifts. So the difference between the just five, four major third I was talking about and a Pythagorean diatone, which is two big whole steps. So it's about 20 cents. So you heard Steve, especially singing these sort of ostinato things going nah, in the bass part yeah. that, uh, so the piece exists kind of simultaneously in, in a, in a mode. And then also in like a little drift of that same mode. Fascinating. God, like yeah. I, I could nerd out on this all day long. <laughs> I wanted to also ask about, so back to, <laughs> to four voices. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so there were no program notes for that piece. I noticed in the program. And I was mm. wondering if that was um, an intentional omission or if it was just, there aren't program notes for that. And therefore our, the impact that us as audience members got from it, we didn't get any context from a program note, whereas everything else we did. So I'm wondering, you know, why no program notes, but also what was the intended impact of that piece? And I know it's been around before. It's been performed uh, before. Yeah. Um, there aren't program notes in the score for that. There's not... A, I, I feel like the pieces in it, in the way that it's presented in the score, kind of an anti-programmatic piece. Uh, It is, it is very, very abstract in a certain sense. Uh, There's no text. There's no fixed pitches. 
Um, and I kind of love the piece at existing as a, like an object in a way that it's not a song. It's like a, a construction of something, uh. you know? So you're, I also like that the piece is long enough that I think even if you have certain associations with the sounds, which are kind of unavoidable because they're human sounds and we, we connect them to meaning immediately because the voice is a meaning machine. Uh, by the end of the piece, I think you're probably thinking of shh or or in, in like the context of what it is in the piece and not as, you know, be quiet or I'm tired or whatever they... <laughs> might have meant at the beginning. Yeah, it's interesting. We were uh, actually watching the show also with my husband, who um, is a comic artist. And so he was just kind of listening and looking along the side and just casually sketching, like really not mm. sort of paying fully attention. And it was re- the conversation we had af- afterwards was fascinating because while Zane and I were sitting there with our, you know, very sharp pencils and we're like, we're going to talk with Jeff about this. We're going to take notes. It's very important, <laughs> you know, like sitting there attending to it. You know, and we were kind of like, well, what's going on? We were sort of trying to figure this out. And his reaction to it, as, as he just listened, he was like, yeah, that was awesome. You know, like, I just kind of, it was just this thing, and it was over there, and it was just cool. Like, I, it, and he really, mm-hmm. it, it was, it, the, the, it made us sort of think a little bit about the role of, um, you know, what's the role as an audience member? Like, sometimes do you just let stuff wash over you? Mm. Sometimes do you lean forward? I mean, do you intend that when you think about the impact of your pieces? Yeah, I think about, I think about that all the time, about... Uh the way that a certain piece encourages uh, a kind of audience, uh, not participation (laughs) because Lord, uh, but you know, (laughs) engagement. Uh, We have a lot of pieces that are very, I I think there's a dichotomy of like outward versus inward pieces and uh, four voices is an inward piece. Right. Uh, And I would say that the, the Sariaho is maybe a mix and Carolyn Chen's piece is a lot of outward. Um, but we, we have some pieces by, uh, Evan Johnson that we do that I think exemplify a kind of inward music where his music is often extremely quiet and very sparse. And the performative space of it is sometimes explicitly not to the audience. Uh, like the piece he wrote for Lodebang, we are turned towards each other the bass clarinet actually has his back to the audience sort of at an angle and you might not hear some of the sounds in the piece but the Mm -hmm. idea is uh that as an audience member a thing that he loves is a focusing of many people's attention on one thing in a kind of uh heightened intensified group attention that that's the thing that happens at, at any music Mm -hmm. Uh, and he wants to focus on that feeling and create it. So the pieces become extremely quiet and delicate and inward. So I have to say to the audience before when we do these live, uh, put your program down. Don't say it on your lap. If you're going to fidget, you know, cough. (laughs) (laughs) Make any noise that you need to make now because for the next 10 minutes, you're going to feel really bad if you move because it's going to be louder than the piece. Oh, yeah. Uh, So... You know, we think about how to balance a piece like that with something that is bombastic and huge and, and you know, emotionally expressive in a traditional way. Um, Jeff, looking forward, um, 
there, we have two two questions I want to ask you about sort of looking forward. We're going to hopefully get out of this pandemic sometime relatively <laughs> soon. You know, we're, right. we're now at a year, gosh. Um, what are you excited about for when we're done? Uh, I mean, everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about traveling. Yes. Like being a musician, part of being a working musician for me has always been being able to go places and meet people. And I miss that very much. Like I, I've sometimes gone about like 130 days a year. So it's wow. been a big change to not do that. ECMLS does some touring around. So I'm I'm excited for that to to come back and just to, I don't know, just be with people. Yeah. That's that's yeah. a dumb and obvious answer, but you know that's what it is. <laughs> it's it's not at all. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of these conversations that we've been having is uh, the second request and the second question I'm I'm going to ask uh, is related to this. But um, one of the things we've hearing as a theme is that um, when you look at compositions of work after periods of you know trauma or war or whatever, I mean, what you wind up discovering is that there's this need for joy that there's this need for people to kind of reconnect and kind of find each other. Um, and so one of the projects that we've been working on the side is this little thing called the Playlist of Joy, because we kind of want to just be ready and we want to share that, that feeling with people. And so I wanted to ask you, what, what music is giving you that feeling right now? What, what music makes you feel joy when you need to access that feeling, if you can access that feeling right now and, and if that's a thing you value? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stevie Wonder songs in the key of life. Mm. Yes. Yes. That so I, I have, straight I have that double LP plus a seven inch. Actually that's on my record player right now. Awesome. So anything from, uh, anything from that, you know, it's, it's perfect. Beautiful. I love it. That's going straight onto the playlist. <laughs> <laughs> I have one nerdy, uh, condu- conductor question. Um, so I obviously I noticed through the many performances that I've watched of Ekmele's performing is that here you are singing some of the most ridiculously difficult music that I've ever heard in my life. And there you are standing off to the side, not only singing it, but waving your arms in the air and keeping everybody together. How did it take a long time for you to get good at balancing those two things? Or is it just something that you're like, no, this is, this is, uh, this is me. I, uh, I always had, uh that connection i think mostly because of my my education at westminster choir college i had a wonderful uh theory teacher named stephen young who tortured us with various nadia boulanger type implements because he stayed with her so we uh we spent a lot of time with the hindemith elementary training for musicians so i spent many hours conducting while tapping rhythms and singing solfege and things so i was i was made ready awesome yes <laughs> <laughs> so you can uh rub your stomach and pat your head at the same time absolutely if i if i rehearse and one's in five eight and one's in three four <laughs> fantastic uh, uh jeff uh maybe a few plugs for ekmelis where can folks find you online yeah, just go to ekmelis.com, E-K-M-E-L-E-S. Um, there you can find links to our blog with some some thoughts about vocal music and uh, some some interviews with composers who, who write uh, just intonation music. You can also find links to our YouTube page there, which is where all of our shows are going uh, as long as we are 
not able to do shows in person. Uh, our show of February 27th will be online through uh, Saturday, March 6th. If this is coming out after that or if you have missed it, uh, we're doing another one on May 8th. Uh, and I'm really excited. We're, we're sort of tiptoeing back into doing what we do. So uh, in October, we did a show where we were all apart. Now we're doing a quartet show live in February, and then we're going to do a sextet in May, and that's going to be uh, Courtney Bryan, a composer I mentioned earlier, her uh, set of sacred music called A Time for Everything, mm-hmm. and then uh, Wolfgang Riem, his uh, Sieben Passionstexte, which is an incredible uh, passion setting of his, also for Six Voices, and then we'll round it out with a little piece by an incredible composer who's having a bit of a revival right now, Julius Eastman's Our Father, which is one of his late pieces from the 1980s. Fantastic. And that's going to be streamed on YouTube again, just like the one on February 27th. Exactly. Yeah. And if you check out, uh, if you check out ekmelis.com, you can get the links to YouTube, subscribe there, and then pop on over to the website if you're watching the show, because we'll have a link up to the program. And a link for you to send us some dollars because we are doing all of our online shows for free and not getting a ticket income this year. So every little bit helps. Yeah. Now is the time to support the arts. That's for sure. So do you think, you know, following COVID times when we can do live performances and we can't, obviously you do performances with electronics a lot, but do you see some kind of hybridization of, of the technologies that we're exploring now during COVID um, combining with live performance in the future? Yeah, there's some interesting work that's that had already been uh, that you know it, it had been in process, and this has really pushed it along. Right, everyone has to know how to zoom. Most people know how to like stream a concert or something now. Uh, whereas it used to be more specialist knowledge. There's a there's a group called Switch Ensemble. It's a new music group that I've I've sung with before that have been working on telematic performances. So. Uh, performances that are made to be remote and online so all the people are in different places and the and the music is written for that and it's Mm. made to be assembled in that way Uh, which i think is really important that the work that we do uh is not a simulacrum that the work that we do is work of our time and place like i want to do that all the time anyways with with the singing that we do in normal concerts but if our time and places, we can't be together and we have to be in different places, we shouldn't pretend that that's not the case and just be, uh, you know, singing heads in boxes forever. Like we need to do something else. Jeffrey, this has been a fantastically interesting conversation. And I feel like we could talk all day about so many mm-hmm. of the intricacies of the new music that you're creating with Ekmelis and with Loadbang. Um, it's just so fantastic. And, and we thank you. Uh, for being so generous with your time, for chatting with us, and for continuing to create such new music that is uh, worthy of talking about it for over an hour. Uh, it's just really <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Life. It was a pleasure to talk to you both. Yeah, absolutely. Well, enjoy your 42-degree day in New York. and uh, I will. <laughs> we'll Rest look assured, forward I will. to uh, tuning in on May 8th for the next live performance. Pun intended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Micro-tuning in. Yes. Micro-tuning in. <laughs> Actually, that makes it sound like you're only watching a second of it. Macro-tune in. <laughs> Macro-tuning in. Exactly. Awesome. Well, you have a great day, uh, Jeff, and we will talk to you soon. 
Okay, bye-bye. All right, ciao. And now for some more of the good stuff. Here are excerpts from the other three pieces performed live at the Ekmeles concert. First up is the world premiere of Institu by Rebecca Bruton. Okay. So. Body, body. Yes. Body, body. Yes, yes. Body, yes. The next excerpt is from Four Voices by Nomi Epstein.
And finally, here is Fly Blue Between Light by Carolyn Chen. More information, including links to the composer's pages and additional episode references, can be found in our episode guide at inunisonpodcast.com slash episodes. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. If you've got ideas for our podcast, please send us a message at ideas at inunisonpodcast.com. And who knows, maybe Chorus Dolores will ask us to talk about it during announcements. <laughs> In Unison is sustained, nourished, and fostered by you, our loyal and loving listeners. And don't forget to subscribe to In Unison on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at In Unison Pod. And hey, if you like what you heard, tell a friend or a section mate. Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon. Choir robes designed, ordered, and dry cleaned by Chorus Dolores, who is not watching you eat while you're wearing your robe, right? In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.